Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. Hello, this is the Pop Cult Podcast. I am Seth Harris. Ariana Ramos. And we are going to be talking about the recently released The Batman, uh, as well as uh, After Yang. So two movies that just came out uh, here on the weekend of March the 4th. And we're going to talk about them. So first, we're going to start with The Batman. Uh, if you don't know what this movie is, I'm guessing you've probably lived in some country that hasn't had access to Western media ever. Uh, it, I'd it, be very surprised if anyone who I know I can't imagine anyone on the globe who wouldn't know like who Batman the, is. Just at and least. listening to this yeah. podcast out of all the podcasts yeah. they could be listening yeah. to. So uh, this takes place in the second year of Batman's career. Uh, a separate continuity, of course, from all the previous iterations of Batman. Uh, and this one finds Bruce Wayne kind of comfortable in this role of going out on patrol every night and beating up thugs. He's established a relationship with a uh, police detective, James Gordon. And the city of Gotham of course, is just a very bleak, gloomy place. Well, in the middle of all of this, uh, the mayor is murdered. And a card is left for Batman, which introduces him to uh, the Riddler, this masked figure that keeps releasing videos talking about the corruption in the powers that be in Gotham and how he is going to take them out. And he seems to believe Batman is like an ally in this fight with him. Uh, as Batman is trying to uncover the corruption as well as who this Riddler is, he meets uh, Selina Kyle, who is a waitress at the Penguin's Iceberg Lounge, and finds out that that's a location where a lot of movers and shakers in the city have been gathering, and uh, it becomes the place from which they learn a lot about what's going on. Uh, so, Ariana, what did you just think generally about The Batman? It was okay of a movie. It was a little clunky from place to place, because I felt like there were just uh, <coughs> scenes that didn't have very good transitions in them, and so you were kind of confused as to how or what brought you there. And there are some scenes that lasted a little too long. It is about three hours. So yeah, it is a long movie. The runtime means there's a lot going on in it. And especially the second act, it feels that there's some moments where they're trying to get from one plot point to the next plot point, And you can kind of get a little like disoriented. Yes. By, like, well, they're on a computer now? Like, when? where did this come from? So, yeah. Uh, I think atmospherically, it did a very good job of introducing a Gotham that you kind of wanted to be pulled into and explore. I wish there was a little bit more of like day-to-day life of Gotham versus just being like, this is like... Well, I think that may have to do with the perspective from which the film is told. Uh, because this, I think this is the first Batman movie where Batman is in almost every single scene of the movie. Yes. And it is very much, there's Robert Pattinson who plays Batman does voiceover as the character which gives it kind of this like film noir detective yeah. mystery sort of thing going on well we're also going through his thoughts because it is very much a journal that he is yes. writing into and i like the fact that we when we see it it's like year two batman nobody says it out loud we just see it yeah and I'm going to be honest. It's like a journal he's writing. Yes, it is my favorite portrayal of Batman so far. I was going to say, I think 
when we're looking at these specific characters, ones that have appeared in multiple pieces of media, so that would be like Batman, Catwoman, Riddler, Penguin, and even James Gordon, uh, probably the best versions of these. I think there's a good argument for Gary Oldman's James Gordon. As yes. A, um, I think Colin Farrell's Penguin works better than Danny DeVito's Penguin works on paper. Oh, but come on. You've already, like, written... You've already talked uh, about how... Well, yeah, we'll about Tim Burton's <laughs> Penguin we need to talk about for a minute. So he is, as a baby, thrown into the sewers, sort of like baby Moses in a basket. Yeah. And this is all in the opening credits of Batman Returns. He's found by a group of penguins in the sewers who we later learn were abandoned at the Gotham Zoo when it closed. And right away, right there, brings up a big question. So it's in Gotham City, when a zoo closes, they just abandon all the animals there? That I've go. never heard of a zoo doing Gotham that. Gotham does not give a shit. <laughs> and then, some point during him being living with the penguins... He joins up with either a gang that is circus-themed or a circus that has gone rogue. And the Red Triangle Circus at Gang, I think is what they're called in the movie. I don't know if like, the, the circus people were already there. No, no, no. They're working with... The with I, d I don't think that's the case. Why would the circus be living in a zoo? I don't know. I don't I mean, know. But why would the penguins be there? <laughs> like, But then he was yeah. thrown in a sewer and like he was found by them. So how is the sewer connected to where the... I mean, sewers zoo. run to the zoo, I guess, but I don't know why the penguins could have figured out how to get down there. Uh, yeah, because it feels like the it's just open sewer water running into the penguin habitat, which no wonder the zoo closed. Um, I'm still surprised the penguins are alive. But yeah, this version of the penguin, uh, the penguin appears to kind of be like a, a gang nickname. Mm -hmm. uh, Oswald Cobblepot is, I feel like, very much modeled after kind of like a Tony Soprano gangster yes. kind of guy. It's an unrecognizable unrec Colin Farrell under tons of prosthetic makeup. You also have to wonder, like, well, if you wanted a fat guy in the role, you could have just... There's many yeah. fat white I men feel like there in was, Hollywood. There was... It, it was part of the promotion. It was part of, like... Look at how we've transformed You know, we him. transform uh, like and he's Colin good. Farrell and, like, who, like coincidentally enough is going to be in the next film that we're going to be talking he's about he's in both so it's, it's in a, both. a colin farrell double feature um like and he's one of those actors like you can't deny he is physically attractive like he <laughs> sorry Seth just gave a look i'm just i mean like, you can deny it it's just like, it's weird like as if it's a law <laughs> i don't know like Maybe there are people that aren't attracted to what Colin Farrell's got <laughs> going on. I don't know. But it's like he is, he's, he's a he's traditionally Hollywood-looking yeah, traditional, guy. Yeah. Like, traditional... Leading like, man kind of person. Leading man. Type. But I would say he his most interesting work has been once he kind of abandoned that Hollywood leading man thing. And he just does like these... Like, I wouldn't say the Batman's smaller. But like when he does... He takes weirder roles or smaller roles. Yeah. Uh, like killing of a sacred deer, In which he was with uh, Barry. Uh, oh, well, we, oh, you're gonna give away a little something by talking about Barry Keoghan. But okay, yeah. so uh, so yeah, I think that penguin is it's different than any other penguin people outside of the comics have ever seen. Yeah, and I I do love that like Paul Dano was given Riddler because he has played like creepy people before. Mm -hmm. Uh, like prisoners, Danny yes, prisoners. But yeah. I did enjoy the fact that when he's quote unquote unmasked of sorts, he's so docile in a certain way until he goes completely berserk. But he does amazing. Oh, yeah, I'd say it's so much better than Jim Carrey's Riddler. Yes, and then 
uh, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle. She is so fucking charming. When she's, I uh, one thing I noted was the scenes with her and Batman. She does ninety percent of the talking. Yes, the thing is like, okay, Bruce Wayne barely talks. Well, we'll talk. We're gonna talk, get more into Batman in a minute. I just yeah. want to talk about these ones. Uh, yeah, I think. She it's probably the most nuanced Catwoman we've ever got. Yeah. I could see why some people love Michelle Pfeiffer because it's a very like iconic version of Catwoman. Yes. And it's very like larger than life. And if that's like something Well, it's yeah. also embedded into the brains of millennials that grew up on uh yeah. Catwoman. It's sort of like to some she might have been like their first kind of sexual awakening. You have this weird like nerdy woman that doesn't realize her uh her beauty until she basically is reborn as uh like as the cat woman yeah and this like the, and the thing in this movie is selena kyle is never cat woman she just happens to like the ski mask she wears kind of has these little like cat ear type things but they never call her cat woman in the movie she never wields a whip or it's that costume it's more like all these people are impersonating what it is that they would be called so she is very cat like riddler is leaving like but riddles. in riddler they do call riddler and penguin they call penguin it's just her character they specifically keep her as selena kyle yes. and it works because to see her show up in like a leather cat outfit in this movie with the kind of tone it's establishing would just not well, work at all. Well, it wouldn't be out of the realm with the leather daddy aesthetic that they do have in this film. Well, I mean, Batman is a leather daddy. <laughs> uh, one actor I think that was just completely wasted in this film is uh, Andy Serkis as Alfred. He is barely in the movie. I mean, you could see the personality in it, but again, but he still, was barely in the movie. And uh, he has a great scene with uh, Pattinson near the end of the movie. Uh, needed, I won't say like what's going on, but like it's a good scene. More character building for that to to really hit home. Yeah, um, I think Jeffrey Wright was fine. John Turuto, just like just looking at, um, oh, he plays yeah, Carmine Falcone. So um, looking at recent photos of him, it seems as if he just came in his own attire. With the sunglasses. Yeah, he just... He's, <laughs> he just came up to And his acting is very uh, subtle. Yeah. Um, uh, compared to some of the other characters. He's not... He's playing everything, like, down. Mm-hmm. And now he's actually... Because he's playing um, Carmine Falcone. This is our second version of Cal- Carmine Falcone. The last time we saw this character in film uh, live action was Tom Wilkinson in Nolan's Batman Begins. And I think Totoro's a better fit for the character. I never bought Wilkinson just visually mm-hmm. as Carmine Falcone. Especially if you like look at the comic books version of Falcone. He's closer matched to like yes. Totoro for sure. Uh, and then there's one small role uh, that I th- thought stood out. It was Peter Sarsgaard plays uh, a part of the DA's office, Gil Coulson. And it's only really like one or two scenes in the movie. Three, I guess, because he does have a big finale scene. We're not going to say what happens. Mm -hmm. But uh, he... I I liked what he was doing in it. He was very pathetic and sad. Yes. Well, we do have to emphasize that typically when you see him on screen, I have had... I've heard you audibly (laughs) groan. Well, whenever I saw him in uh, The Lost Daughter, I believe, that was that Maggie Gyllenhaal film. Yeah. yeah, Where he he shows up very briefly as this sort of fling that uh, the main character goes off with, which is why she like kind of abandons her daughters for a period. And I hated him in that. <laughs> he was uh, he was unbearable. Uh, but here he, I think he does a good job of playing like someone who is 
there's a sniveling kind of operative for the powers in Gotham who isn't really doing anything that has to do with his degree in law. Yeah. He's basically just upholding a broken system. Yes. Uh, so now let's talk about the man, Robert Pattinson, who the interviews and marketing leading up to this movie had me excited just because of how um, uh, weird he is, I guess. <laughs> he, just, <coughs> he is like a, a, he's just a weirdo. <laughs> um, he, and he plays Bruce Wayne that way, which works. It's And it makes sense. Well, he when, did talk about it within like press before the film that everybody was asking him like so what does what is this batman gonna be like and he just said he's just gonna be weird and gloomy and emo and and there were fans that weren't excited but i mean i think it makes sense if you think about okay he was maybe eight or nine when his parents were murdered and we don't know a lot about his childhood because often when you see, you know, we look at Batman Begins, what we do is we end up seeing, you know, Bruce Wayne traveling around the world when he's, you know, a young adult. But that period uh, between, you know, the murder of his parents and him leaving Gotham to go train, like, people need to think about, we learn our social skills as children. That That's where you're going to develop them. That's where you're going to test out certain behaviors and you're going to look at the feedback you get from other people and determine if you want to continue behaving this way or if you want to change your behavior. Like you're looking at social norms because we all kind of want to assimilate to a certain degree with groups that we are connected to. Yeah. And Bruce Wayne doesn't have that because the trauma of his parents' murder I get the sense that the only person he really communicated much with during that period would have been Alfred. Yes. And so he doesn't possess any of the sort of social norms. I wouldn't say he's as far as saying, like, oh, Bruce Wayne is on the autism spectrum. He's not that. He's just, he's very uncomfortable. when He's he ha- closed off. When he has to elaborate, like, on himself or like engage another person everything is very like objective it's i'm here to investigate this thing and he doesn't make small talk and when selena kyle is like you can tell she's trying to like probe him and figure out who is this guy what's going on with him she has difficulty because he is so just like a wall yes emotionally uh and near the end of the movie you start to see that crack a little bit and it also goes back to uh if you've seen the trailers the scene where he beats up these like clown makeup guys he goes, you know, I'm vengeance. And that becomes a big overarching theme in the yeah. film is what does that mean to declare yourself the embodiment of vengeance? And so the film's sort of core message is that you can't live that way, which is something I like. And that's something yeah. I've always thought with Batman is there, this isn't a long-term thing. No human could do this for decades and not destroy themselves or get killed in some way. And so here we have a Batman who by the end of the film reconfigures how he views his role in this city and it's not as someone who's going to live purely as like a boogeyman in people's minds or like a harbinger of violence yeah he sees his need to be like a savior and actually directly help people that have been harmed well i think it's also i what i really loved the fact about this batman is not only are we dealing with sort of second year batman which means he's still young he's still figuring things out He's still very much a lone wolf scenario, which I, I, I'm, 
I resent even using lone wolves because lone wolves mean you're going to fucking die. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, he's he, very solitary. He's very solitary. Like, he's even very distant from Alfred, which is a change from what we normally yes, see. Yes, and with Alfred being the one person that does care for him and want the best for him, he's still reluctant to listen to Alfred. And even the talks that he has with Selena are very interesting. So I'm waiting for, um, you know, the alt-right anti-woke crowd to really go against this film but i haven't really bothered to look up i know ben shapiro already has said he hates it of course because (laughs) selena kyle like starts prodding him and she's like with that kind of mindset you have to be rich and And she yeah she's right that he's so yeah distant and it has to do with the fact that when she's discussing a friend of hers who um fell into a horrible situation he's kind of like well that's her fault that's yeah that she's is, like her taking drugs and her getting involved with these bad men and getting abused we know that's a decision she made kind and of thing selena kind of just looks at him like you do, you don't know anything about the world and in a sense he doesn't he has like got he's become this boogeyman for the boogeymen that have traumatized him so he's going after the same group of people over and over again and it's it's like over time, he probably developed a relationship with one detective who it was willing enough to turn on a fucking light to scare people off or let him know that he's needed. However, he's greatly disliked by the police force. They're like, there's a vigilante on the loose. And I think I kind of enjoyed that because that is the missing key a lot of times with the new Spider-Man movies and the other Batman movies of being like, it's goddamn fucking insane that we have a vigilante yeah, doing it's, this it's sort shit. Of, think about the real world like response to the Proud Boys. It's the same thing. It's a group of people who believe they have the right to take extrajudicial action because the system isn't doing it right. And I'd say, you're right, the system isn't doing it right. But the solution is not like vigilante violence yes <laughs> like, that's and not so, how you fix it uh at the end of the film like the riddler is basically a product of the batman because the batman has been there for two years riddler has just appeared and he very much thinks that like batman is his ally in this crusade against these people and and for most of the movie from the riddler's point of view he's not wrong <laughs> no he's not wrong at all so it was probably my favorite portrayal it just was clunky in a lot of t- uh areas. And i think it's just too long it needed to be like edited down it was too long but i know that the reason that they probably made it this long was the idea of either that they have decided that they're not going to make any other sequels and i'd be fine this. with that if it just and ended that would there. be fine yeah. and if they do make a sequel then i would really want them to tighten it up because it wasn't as if like there was dull moments my major problem and this is not spoiling the film. It feels like it's about two to three minutes long that, you know, Batman is on his motorcycle driving. Yeah. And that scene was too long for yeah, there's, me. It's those, like, sort of transition shots linger. Yes. And, and when like, they could have just And I'm not cut saying it, down, yeah. it wasn't interestingly shot. There were Oh, time, yeah, it's beautiful. Like, it's, it's interesting, but then it isn't after a while because you're kind of like, there's there's 30 minutes left or 20 minutes and now i have to want like it was almost like every time i saw i i thought this was the scene where it's gonna end oh yeah and it, it, kept going. it felt like there were like a couple different outs for the movie but then it would just keep going and it would interesting what came next 
But it did start to weigh on you as a viewer where you're like, oh, okay, how much longer? Because I'd say there's probably like three climaxes in this movie. Yes. <laughs> um, and they've kind of done that before. Like The Dark Knight kind of had multiple climaxes, his fight with the Joker, the people in the boat, and then Harvey Dent. But those, from a structural point of view, were a bit smoother. This... Like where you're saying, I think it's the the time devoted to the reveal and then the spectacle and then Batman engaging with it. And you're like, oh, okay. Oh, okay, it's not over yet. And then it's like, <laughs> oh, and then another, you know, reveal and then Batman engaging with it and more spectacle. And then you're like, okay, we're finally done. So nope, there, one more time. <laughs> there's a character, there's something in this film that I do consider a whole character by itself. And the city of Gotham. No, <laughs> that's the cliche. It's reminiscence of old Spider-Man, and it has to do with Robert Pattinson's fucking hair. It is very <laughs> emo hair. It okay. is very emo. So Spider-Man three hair for most sure. of the time when we're watching the film, his his hair, if it is revealed, it is wet. It is very dark. Well, most of the time, you don't see the and hair. Yeah. it is over his eyes. Yes. Um, and then we go to a scene where he is going to a funeral, and it looks as if he's got like almost a wig on because it's long, it's dry, it's away from his face. So, and then my favorite part is when he's gonna go confront somebody. His hair is wet again, and I could not get over the fact that his hair was in his eyes. <laughs> Here's my interpretation of it. And I think that's a very interesting detail you pointed out. And that's meant to inform us about the character. Because it's a little nicer when he goes to the mayor's funeral. The rest of the time, you're saying it looks wet. I'm going to argue, I think it's greasy. Ooh. Because this, do you think this version of Batman is doing a lot of like hygiene and self-care maintenance? Um. No. He just, he's... <laughs> He sleeps during the day, That's and at true. night he throws on this homemade Batman costume, which so is means doesn't like, breathe well. That means like he's probably if he is showering, he's not washing his hair. As he well, he's showering, but he's probably like he's not getting his hair cut. Yeah, see, because his hair is like well, below the ears. And this is you can see this because very early on in the movie, like after the first night patrol, Alfred tells him that they invited these people over to uh, for breakfast. For, yeah, for to the apartment for it's breakfast. It's like a business breakfast because he won't go to like the Wayne Foundation headquarters. And Batman is so annoyed by the fact <laughs> that he has to deal with these people, and so that told me, okay, this isn't the Christian Bale version where Bruce Wayne is this character he plays for the public. This Bruce Wayne is, doesn't even care about what the public thinks about him. Yeah, and the, he's it's a like, complete and the recluse. news outlets do know his name, but they're kind of like, we don't know what he's doing. Like, he's just like... I, I Before we wrap up this interview, I do want to... <laughs> this wait, interview? Or this uh, re review. <laughs> Who are you interviewing Sorry, me? <laughs> sorry. Uh, before we wrap up this review, uh, I would like to point out a fact someone has been sharing online that... On this timeline, his parents are killed in 2001. I thought they said it was 2002 in the film. I think someone was saying 2001. I don't no, know. No, it was 2002. We'll say it's 2001. <laughs> uh, because they said, uh, based, it was like June of 2002, or 2001, I think. And they said, then that means the film that Bruce Wayne's parents and himself could have been leaving at the time that they were shot was the first Fast and the Furious movie. And based on the Batmobile we have in this movie... <laughs> That seems like it might not be off that he was inspired by not Zorro, 
but the Fast and the Furious. I don't know because I think they said 2002. I might be wrong. Why are you trying to ruin this for me? Because um, you cannot have nice things. And this is my podcast now, okay. bitch. All right. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> That's. Yeah. I was going to say something. Now I lost. Okay, no, it's 2002. But I think the the like in the film they're like it's October 31st. Like so someone had died. Well, that's the opening of the movie is on yeah. Halloween. And they also mentioned like they also mentioned like apparently it was like 20 years. They were like this death happened and the 20 years ago similar well, you know, to this thing. Remember when the movie was supposed to come out? It was supposed to be I think 2021. Okay. So I think it is 2001. They may have digitally changed it to 20, 2002 in the movie, uh, yeah. but I'm like, eh, 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 we all know. Did, we all know Fast and Furious. Yeah. yeah. And I think. He did not take away the message of Fast and Furious. Family? Family. Well, no, by the end of the movie, he's learned it, right? And his family's Gotham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's our thoughts on The Batman. Uh, if you would like to share your own thoughts, uh, I'm sure you either love it or you hate it. It seems like there's no really, or maybe, this is the kind of movie where you could be like, man, it's fine. Uh, I think it was pretty good. I would recommend it if you're wanting some sort of like spectacle to watch. It's a perfect movie for that. The newest film from writer-director Kogonara uh, just got released on s- demand this week, and it is called After Yang. If you aren't familiar with Kogonara, he previously directed, I believe it was like 2016 or 17, um, Columbus, which was a drama uh, starring John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson uh, about a man coming back to his hometown and dealing with the death of a parent, and then a young woman who was kind of adrift and trying to figure out what she wanted to do in life, and the two of them kind of supporting each other. Uh, After Yang is also a drama, but this time it's a science fiction film, but not the sort of, you know, shoot 'em up spectacle, action-y kind of thing. It is very much a character piece. Uh, it's a drama. I know, Ariana, you said it felt like short stories, kind of. Yeah, and were threaded all together. Mm-hmm. And so the premise is, uh, there's a family. Colin Farrell plays the father, Jake. Jodie Turner-Smith plays uh, the wife, Kyra. And they've adopted a daughter named Mika, who's maybe about 9, 10 years old, uh, from China. And we're never given an exact date of when this is, uh, but in this future world, Chinese uh, adopted children are encouraged to have um, technos assigned to them or purchased by their parents. And a techno is a, uh, a robot, essentially, modeled after a Chinese person who is meant to keep the adopted child in contact with their birth culture. Uh, the robots, or sorry, the technos, because that's a, that's a big thing is what you call them in this yeah. movie. Uh, this techno, specifically Yang, is a major part of the family as the little girl grows up, and shortly into the film starting, he malfunctions and is dies, essentially. For yeah. all intents and purposes, it would be what we as humans would call death. And they, they're told that they just he can't be repaired because the problem is in his core, which is where his memories are saved. It's kind of the central processor of the techno. And Colin Farrell's character, Jake, doesn't know what to do. He's not ready yet to say goodbye to Yang. His family isn't. But he he knows he has to do something. And so he goes to a black market repairman who leads him to a, uh, a curator of sort of a technology museum, I guess it would be, 
uh, played by Saritra Chodhuri. Um, I know I probably pronounced that wrong, but she's an actress I've seen. She was in um, Homeland. She played Mandy Patinkin's wife. And, and so, The Green Knight. Yeah. And she really wants to preserve Yang's body because as we learn that technos, I think, have like a decomposition program. So once they die, the body kind of degrades. She wants to preserve him but is only willing to move at the pace that Jake wants to. And so what Jake wants to do is he wants to tap into Yang's core and see what Yang saw. Because one of the things that he realizes is he bought Yang refurbished. Yes. Which is not something that we learn people normally do. Normally people will buy these Chinese technos new. So it, it's this, their child's the only one it bonded with. Uh, but Yang was refurbished. The store he bought it from is out of business. So there's a lot of hints that like it was kind of not an above-board operation. Yes. Uh, and through accessing Yang's memories, he starts to realize uh, the complexity of Yang's inner life and that Yang had an entire life that the family didn't know about. Mm-hmm. That he had, you know, a woman that we aren't really sure the seriousness of the relationship there, but it seemed as though he had strong emotions towards this woman and she towards him. Uh, and... He basically kind of works backwards through Yang's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also there's flashbacks from different family members about Yang. And, and they're th- called techno-sapiens. Yes. In the film. Uh, and there is a mysterious woman, played by Haley Lou Richardson, that has a, a deep connection to Yang that goes back a long time. Uh, so what did you think in general about After Yang? Um, it is a gorgeous film. It's... Almost a breath of fresh air after when you think about all the superhero films that are out there. This is not discounting um, the Batman. It's just, it was nice to see something that was future setting that wasn't like, we are at war or, you know. People said it is a very tender movie and we don't get much of that. Uh, Though you mentioned war. There are, the film is never explicit in world building. But there's some clues as to what's happened in this world. Uh, the repairman, the black market repairman that he runs into, yes. seems to have a sort of paranoia about Chinese-made products. And also, posters are up on his wall talking about or inferring to some not-too-long-ago war involving China that had happened. Yeah, And so the film understands that for the purpose of what it's trying to do, we don't need to know that. But in terms of getting us to feel as if we're immersed in a fully realized world, these are little, like, things sprinkled about. Yeah, there is a lot of world building that if you pick up on the details, it kind of feels as if I would basically, like you were talking about before that was off uh, podcast and... um... We should never speak off podcast. I've thought about that sometimes, like (laughs) an embargo on conversations until after we've recorded. But it does feel as if this was a life setting, um, something like someone who within Star Trek, old Star Trek for me, um, that we were seeing like normal people live their lives that were on a ship, like discussing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just he, uh, Colin Farrell's character runs a tea shop where he. Yes. And early on, we see how he's sort of out of sync with this time period. A woman comes down and she's wanting like tea crystals, and she's upset with him as to why he doesn't have tea crystals. He he, he hand makes do... he hand makes like mixes and brews. Yes, yeah. and the funny thing, we do see him drink some tea crystals, but he seems unsatisfied when he does. Or he's passive, as opposed to there's a whole conversation he has with Yang about yes. what inspired him to do this, and it's 
he had watched a film and a character in the film talked about like all of the things he experienced from this cup of tea which in turn like informs us about yang and his yearning to want to feel things the way humans do yes but he's just simply incapable of feeling it to that extent yeah um it is a very like you said tender film it's at the beginning and along with the trailer, a lot of what we're saying right now are spoilers. So if you don't want to know anything about this film, yeah. hit pause, go watch it, and experience it as purely as we yeah. did. Because it's a film that, like, to talk about it, I mean, if you're... There's not a plot to spoil, really, yes. in my opinion. But it's... I mean, just talking about it, you're going to talk about details that yes. are important to the and movie. And so, yeah. uh, in the trailer, it never tells you... Like, you know that Yang is a bot, but you don't know why he's there. You might think he's just there for servitude. And a lot of times we do have a lot of movie watching experiences where we see a diverse family, but it's never discussed. Why is this a diverse family? Like, did, you know, this Asian child come from, like, a first marriage or something Mm -hmm. else? But she does call them mom and dad. And then we later find out that this um, techno sapien is basically an older sibling that is there to connect them to their like culture and their race. And so, and that's also something for Yang where he starts to question his own identity because he's a Chinese techno, but he has no experience or feeling about China. And he says, you know, all he can do is kind of regurgitate facts about things. Yes. And so he begins to question the propriety of him being this to Mika, the daughter because he's like, but I don't know what it is like to be Chinese. Yeah. And that's Or if an he's interesting... Chinese enough. Or if yeah. it's, he's a manufactured version, artificial version of what Chinese is. Which probably to like children of immigrants or, you know, Chinese Americans who are multiple generations in. Or just a, a trans uh, racial adoptees that who, at the end of the day mm-hmm. don't feel as if they're Chinese or Asian. They only have an appearance versus the experience. Um, and so, yeah, him, he's like... When people see me, they think Chinese, but when I see me, and we do notice through his memories, he spends a lot of time looking at himself in mirrors. Yes. He sort of, when he sees himself, he's not sure if he sees Chinese. He doesn't know what he sees when he looks at himself. Yeah, he just sees the reflection of himself. Yeah. And... And then there's a whole thing about clones in the movie that I thought was really interesting. And isn't doesn't start out as like a major piece of the plot but eventually does become one Mm -hmm. uh and in this world apparently making clones is a very easy thing to do and there's a piece of information that yang withholds from jake and when jake finds out about it yang sort of reluctantly expresses well i know you don't like clones and it had to do with their neighbor whose name is george Played by Clifton Collins Jr., who's a character actor that's appeared in so many things. Yeah. Um, and we le- learn that George is a single parent. He has twin girls and then an older teenage girl who yeah. is a clone. Yes. And there's no detail given as to who she's a clone of. But it can kind of be inferred that this is possibly the clone of an, his daughter who died young. Yeah, because there is no wife, so there's maybe the assumption that either the wife, they divorced because of a deaf child, or maybe they died together, and he only cloned his daughter during that time. And so, like, we find out, like, through, like, the story that um, Yang had a relationship with a clone, and they were close, and when, like, Jake asked her, like, was this, like, what was the relationship 
and she's like we never talked about our relationship that way like you can tell it's a very intimate relationship that the way he looks at her is a specific way because while he's going through the memories and also the the visualization of the way that the memories I thought was so perfect it's like galaxies in space it's galaxies in space but it also feels like something that like they would make in the future to make it aesthetically pleasing when you're clicking through about these little bundles of lights that he's going through editing of those memory sequences i don't really think there's anything like that i've seen before where the the image is like layered and blurred and transitioned it was very so like the way that they're saying i remember that they explained like uh his so when they receive the 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 thing that's the memory the core the guy that's supposed to fix yang is saying it's spyware but when he goes to the curator jake goes to the curator called cleo she's like it's not spyware it's memories this is the way he learns and she's like and if this has a lot of memories this is a good thing because they removed these from the techno sapiens uh a long time ago and if they wanted to do it spyware they would do it wirelessly so yeah. she's like he has to find a specific w- way to see it and at first jake is at a loss of what to do with yang being gone and then when he goes through the memories it's as if his mourning grows because he realizes like mm-hmm. the experiences that he had with yang not only meant something to him it meant something to yang <laughs> and like it's also like it's making me emotional to think about it because it's like a lot of times we do have attachment to things like and it's like people have attachments to pets or things that are sentimental value and they don't know what to do with themselves because at first the wife is like let's just get a new new one and then she's like maybe not and at first i thought maybe there's going to be like this whole thing with jake not wanting to tell his family because the curator is offering him money and they do talk a lot about the fact that they can't afford it when it's clear that like yeah cleo the curator this is something that will be a boon for her professionally yeah and so you do question like is she looking out for the best interests of jake and his family and yang's memory or is she just exploiting them yeah and it's clear by the end of the movie that this isn't exploitation because she is like you get to take the time that you need and you get to decide what is and isn't included in the exhibit so she was like telling them you can choose the memories we can exhibit the family decides not to exhibit, but they do decide to give her the memories for her to actually study them, mm-hmm. which is still priceless to her at the mm-hmm. end of the day. Um, the memory loops are very interesting because the memories are supposed to be short, but through Jake's um, remembering the situation himself, he's going through that memory and reliving it. And that's another interesting thing where scenes that include Jake or when his wife Kyra remembers uh moments with yang they will do this very interesting loop layering kind of thing yeah. where she hears the audio from yang's memory and then you rehear the audio again just like with milliseconds later and you realize that's her memory being triggered yes and so you get to see the experience through yang's eyes and then the person who he was talking to and so it makes it a much more like full memory where you really understand what each character was thinking and feeling in that moment. Um, the production design of this movie for an independent film is so good. Like, every, and it's the aesthetic of the film 
you'll immediately start to feel vibes of like sort of Asian and Scandinavian, like that sort of minimalism yes. you associate with those. But it never feels like appropriation or exploitative. It just feels like an organic continuum of like design yeah, and, and fashion. Like and this the, is just kind of where things would end up. And due to the fact that the director was an architect and his past film had to do with architecture, you can tell that there is a love for settings without being too abundant but you do notice that things are there there's greenery there's not a lot of viewing of what the outside world is but you just the interiors feel very organic yes like there's a self-driving i wouldn't even call it a car it's like a self-driving pod because there's no steering wheel or anything yeah and people sit facing each other inside of it and it's like wood paneled inside it's like very cozy because yeah. at one point the little girl falls asleep while she's in there um it's just beautiful and it's like heart touching because there's so many layers of it between them not realizing maybe how Yang was so important. We are also watching a child go through mourning because at one point the wife calls, um, Kyra calls her husband to be like, you need to pick up our daughter. She's freaking out. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, she punches another kid in the face. Yeah. And it's because she's mourning, but she's nobody's telling her something's wrong, and she knows something's wrong. Well, they even admit that they kind of gave parenting to Yang more than they probably should have. Well, like, I think that was more Kira being like, no, he, we involved him too much. Like, her guilt, only to realize, like, when she goes through his memories, like, no, he wanted to do this. Like, he yeah. wanted to be a part of her life. Uh, I would say it, yeah, it's just a very, it's, I feel like anybody who just watched big budget studio science fiction, you're going to have your brain stretched by this movie because it's going to do things you're not expecting. The plot structure is not your simple, uh, standard that you're going to see yeah. in a lot of those movies. And it doesn't end in a way that resolves everything because it's a film ultimately about grief and grief doesn't have a clear ending right like it just keeps going i do like the fact that there is like this unspoken tension between the husband and wife because he's not doing so well in this business and she kind of lies to mika their daughter as to why you know daddy is late for dinner and he's going through many emotions and then the moment that he loses yang it's sort of like something opens up inside of him and he's not sure if he should share it with his wife and his wife is like you need to just say what's going on you need to tell us we need to make a decision sort of like it's almost like you know it was like the death of a of a pet you know we need to get this over with yeah we need to bury it we need, we need to move to, on we need to move on and then he just goes like i need to tell you something and she finally understands why it is that he's taking so long and he's going through because he's basically going through the grief in an isolated uh, part by himself. By just going into Yang's memories. Going to Yang's memories. And I do like the fact that we never have a moment where Mika is sitting down and they put the things on her for her to see mm -hmm. because they realize like her relationship with Yang was the purest that it ever was and her love isn't going to... I also like that it wasn't a utopia because we can see in certain things like the sort of paranoid repairman who isn't yes. played over the top. It's subtle. But and then also like Jake's clone prejudice, the like 
prejudice and bias still exists here despite the very like clean aesthetic yeah. So we, this isn't Kogonada going like, oh, what a wonderful future people can live in. It's like, no, they're still going to have the same questions and worry about the same things. And you're still going to have those same sort of evils of human nature rear their heads again. Like, it's yeah, inevitable. it's just showing also the change that happens to this one onset of family where it's mainly Jake who has the problem, not the rest of the family. It's him and he changes by seeing the way that Yang, like Yang had a relationship with Ada, who is a clone, and like also being confronted by his neighbor's like clone daughter by being like, well, some of us are nice, and yeah. so he's confronted and hurt, and he has to deal with it. And there's never a moment where he goes, "Well, this is my reasons for it." We don't have to hear his reasons. We just have to know that he treated them a certain way that made them feel different. And it's funny because he bought like. A, like techno sapien so his daughter wouldn't feel different yeah. but yet he does that to others not like unknowingly thinking he's hiding it it's so that well. same thing like we see in culture now where people will be virtuous in one way and then just completely awful in another way and they don't there's like a cognitive dissonance and understanding i also think this movie has one of the most surprising and interesting opening credit sequences. Yes, I love the opening sequence. At first, I was like, "I am I hating this or am I no, loving this?" So good. And then afterwards, I would realize when we realized what was going on because we're sort of so used to watching a future setting and being like, "Oh, this cutesy little thing is going to be like some, you know, this is how they get their food." Yeah, <laughs> like, and this was just like it was a game the family was playing together, and it was just. The way it communicated information to the audience about other characters in the movie yes. was so good. And I love that the fact that there wasn't like multiple screens or like some digital. It's or very like, simple. Like very laser. simple. Laser. It was just very simply done. And we are introduced to all the characters plus even more like it's indicating that Ada does live with a family. And so. Well, it's also pointing out. Everybody has a family in this yes. story. Even if you don't see their family other than in the opening of the movie. Like Cleo, who is a like museum curator, we, the first time we do see her is she's competing with her family. And the majority of these families are family of four. And there is a devastation afterwards because Mika's like, when are we going to dance again without Yang? And then her mom's like, then we just might have to co compete in a family of three. And she has a meltdown yeah. at the idea. But I would say if you're looking for something that's very quiet and introspective and thoughtful, uh, which a lot of movies in theaters for the last few years and currently are not, um, yeah. I would highly recommend After Yang. I don't know what it's rated. I can't imagine. I mean, there was nothing in this film that was objectionable. Uh and so, yeah, I think it's a movie that you could sit down and watch with your family. I don't think, like, little, little kids are going to get it. But, you know, older, maybe 10 years older up, I think it would be a movie. Yeah, it would just probably be a little bit boring at times yeah. for them. So, But it's a, yeah. If especially, like, maybe if you have a kid that's having some trouble with, like, grief, it might be a good movie to watch. Because yeah, it's going it, to show them, like, an actual process of going like, through that. This isn't, uh, like... Asian American director who's already done Asian American films before and he's yeah. doing it again and he's doing it so thoughtfully without shoving it down your throat kind of thing and 
like I I told Seth this again, never talk outside of the podcast. Um, how you know Jordan Peele got the whole thing of bringing like black actors into uh, a movie setting that was horror. I I hope this director gets the same thing over and over again. I I I want him to win awards. I want him to keep working because. It was such a satisfying watch and even talking about about it made me just a little bit emotional because it is heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking film, but he, well, he communicates his themes so clearly without mm-hmm. just being on the nose about them. Yes. Like you feel like, oh, I get what's going on here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's After Yang. I highly recommend this movie. I think it's probably going to be on my top list of the year. Uh, that good. <laughs> Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to reviews on popcult.blog. Subscribe to be notified when new episodes are up from wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Uh, And visit popcult.blog for more reviews in the meantime. Support us on Patreon. You can check that out. Uh, We have a link there in the show notes. We have lots of rewards and goals we're working towards. And I want to thank our patron, Matt, for his contribution for over a year now. If you do become a patron at the $10 or higher level, you can pick a film that I will watch and review every month. And you can actually add some of your own thoughts to that as well. So until we share our thoughts with you again, keep watching. Keep watching.